0: All right, that is all that I have by way of announcements this morning, and I am very excited to jump into the preaching of God's Word. We have a lot to cover this morning, and so if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3 this morning. Folks, up until this point in our study of the book of Genesis, we have we've only seen God's very good design of this world and his very gracious plan for humanity to to prosper and for us to rest in his goodness and love. Church, as Christians who live in a very sin-sick world, a world with pandemics and racial hatred and political upheaval and everything else in between. As Christians who live in this sin-sick world, we should spend a good amount of time thinking about Genesis chapters one and two in order to remember what God's good design of this world was and what his heart for his people continues to be today. He is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He makes promises and he keeps promises and he is even at work right now to bring us back to the goodness of these first two chapters of our Bibles. But now we come to chapter 3. Now we come to chapter 3 and we begin to see how everything begins to be distorted by sin. And friends, while chapter 3 is sobering, while it is in some ways discouraging to us because in it we see the painful effects of sin entering into this world, I want you to know there is still a lot of hope for us here as well. And so that's what we're going to consider together this morning. Let's begin by reading Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. May God bless the preaching of this sobering passage this morning. While I was recently on vacation, I read a very good biography on the life of Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh, Napoleon was the very young military leader who made a rapid rise to power and ultimately became emperor over the French in the early 1800s. And one of the things that stood out to me as I read about Napoleon, and it will not surprise you if you are familiar with him at all, is his use of propaganda in order to advance himself and in order to advance his career. Napoleon was the king of deceit. He could spin any story in any direction that he wanted to in order to do damage to his enemies and in order to promote his own self-image. Propaganda, by definition, is misleading information that is used to promote one person while discrediting others, and propaganda is dangerous. Napoleon would, would grossly distort his battle reports in order to make the enemy look particularly bad while making himself look particularly good. He would exaggerate how great his victories were in order to deceive the people. When Napoleon's power really began to grow, he quickly destroyed all of the newspapers that were not in active support of who he was and what he was doing. He also created these these coins, these medallions made of himself in order to get his own image out there as much as possible. Propaganda is a distortion of reality in order to discredit a person or a movement and to win people over to a different side. Propaganda is so dangerous because it ignores truth and only leads people based on someone's interpretation of the truth, and that leads to greater and greater error. This is so dangerous. And friends, what we are going to see in our passage this morning is that the use of propaganda, the use of lies and deceit to do damage is is not a new activity. It's not new today. It wasn't new for Napoleon. No, the skillful use of propaganda and deceit has been around a very long time. And what these first seven verses of Genesis chapter three are going to show us this morning is just how dangerous it can be. To distort truth, more specifically, to distort God's word, which is the ultimate standard of truth, is very dangerous and it does great harm to our lives. In fact, that's the main idea of our message this morning. Here it is, to distort God's word is to do great harm. To distort God's word is to do great harm. And this passage helps us to see this by walking us through this this part of the story, by showing us four stages or, or four phases of this story. Stage number one, the probationary time that was given. Stage number two, the serpent that was present. Stage number three, the lie that was believed, and then stage number four, the shame that was felt. Those are the different stages that are going to help us to understand how distorting God's word brings great harm. Let's consider the first one. Stage number one, the probationary time that was given. Listen, if you have been a a Christian for, for any length of time, I wonder if you have ever daydreamed about what life would have been like if Adam and Eve had not sinned. What would this world be like if they hadn't eaten that piece of forbidden fruit? Would this world still be perfect? Would there still be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that could tempt us to sin even today? If so, what would have happened if Adam and Eve didn't sin but then their great, great, great grandson or granddaughter decided to sin by eating of that fruit? What would have happened then? Also, what's the big deal about a piece of fruit? Why was God so uptight about whether they ate from this tree or not? Folks, these are very common questions that people have about this part of our Bibles. But but friends, these questions actually reveal a, a misunderstanding of this part of our Bibles, and specifically, a wrong understanding about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree was a testing ground. It was a testing ground. Theologians like to call it the probationary tree. We see God first speak about it in chapter 2, verse 15. He commands Adam and Eve not to eat of it. So it's a, a testing ground. But listen, not for all of humanity, but specifically for Adam and Eve, who stood at this point in time as the representatives of all of humanity. See, God's design was not to have the world remain even in its nearly perfect state exactly as it was in this moment. As, as good as Eden was, this was not the ultimate goal of creation. We see this in that God's clear covenantal commands to Adam and to Eve, to Mary... And, and to bear children and to fill this world and to do godly work in this world and to have dominion over this world and to do it all while resting in him. God's design was for humanity to practice these things, to, to grow in these things up until a point when heaven and earth would join together and God and man would fellowship in an even sweeter way than was possible in the Garden of Eden. Folks, this is why we see in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, that there were two special trees in the garden, the probationary tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. Folks, we need to ask this question, why would there have been a tree of life if life was exactly the way that it was supposed to be? No, clearly, that tree was being reserved for some climactic moment when God was ready to take this world from being a really, really, really good place to being an even better place, a more eternal, even more permanent, even more restful place than it already was. This was the goal, this was the direction. But, folks, this was not a goal that was to be accomplished by humanity in their own strength. No, God was covenanting himself to humanity and so they were to work towards this ultimate end while being connected to God, while being in fellowship and being in communion with him, while while trusting his every word. He was the, the creator God and he created humanity to do all of this good work on his behalf, but to do it while being in fellowship with him while humbly trusting and following his word of truth. But, but because he also gave humanity a free will, because he gave us the ability to choose, because we are not robots, we have the ability to choose right from wrong, to believe his word or to not believe his word. Because of our free will, God needed to test whether we would fulfill our responsibility in humility and submission before him, or whether we would step out from under that rule and try to accomplish it all in our own strength and for our own glory. And so God, in a sense, forced a testing ground. There was therefore this probationary period of time in which God wanted to see if Adam would be faithful to his part of the covenant, namely, to follow him as the creator God, to submit to his word. Folks, it's my opinion that this probationary time, and I think many theologians would agree with this, was by God's design very early on in the history of this this world, and that it was never intended to last for very long. And I say that because, this testing seems to, to come well before Adam and Eve ever had children, and so not much life has been lived before this moment. And I also say that because I think that this was necessary to happen early on because this was Adam's responsibility. This was his test to pass, not, not his children's test to pass. We're gonna talk about this more in a few moments, but God's word makes it very clear that at this point, God is viewing humanity on a corporate level and he's viewing them through Adam as our corporate head. He stands on behalf of us. Therefore, this test needed to go to him and not to us because if one of his sons, later on, failed to not eat the fruit because it was still available for some reason, then that son would have fallen into sin but he was not our representative, and therefore all of humanity would not have fallen into sin. And so I believe that God forced this to happen early on so that it would be Adam and Eve that were tested in this way. Do you know what this is like? It's almost like a nurse or a lawyer having to take their their state board exams before they go into the hospital and begin to practice medicine. So so a nursing student has often taken every class that they need to take. They have often gathered all the skills that are required to be a nurse, but before they can begin to practice medicine, they need to take that state board exam in order to, to prove themselves. A lawyer, likewise, can't start practicing law until he proves that he has what it takes to do so. Folks, that's very much what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was like for Adam and Eve. As the representatives of all humanity, they had everything that they needed to do the work that God had called them to do, but they needed to prove that they were going to do their God-given work in this world, not in their own strength, but as they were supposed to, in communion with their creator God, believing his authoritative word. Listen, if they had obeyed and not eaten of the fruit then they would have passed the exam, and the process of filling this world as God intended would have begun, and the temptation would have been removed, and there would have been a guaranteed time when they or an offspring would have eaten the tree of life, sealing God's perfect plan for creation. But we know that that's not what happened. No, they failed. They failed the exam, which is why in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, God needed to remove them from the Garden of Eden so that they could not partake of the tree of life, because then they would have lived forever in their sinful state. Do you see how this this testing ground worked and what the purpose of it was? God wanted to ensure that the human race that he created to live and to work as an extension of his goodness would do so in accordance with him, not apart from him, but when they failed, when they stepped out from under his word, he knew that another way would be needed to accomplish his purposes. Palmer Robertson says this, he says, when this focal character of the probationary test is appreciated, something of the reality of the entire scene becomes apparent. The narrative does not recount a silly story about a stolen apple. Instead, a most radical test of the original man's willingness to submit to the specific word of the creator is involved. God wanted to see if the human race who had a free will to choose, would choose to believe his word and to follow his wisdom, or if they would distort his word and follow their own wisdom. And so God forces this testing. He forced it by creating this this forbidden tree, but he also forced it by allowing a new character to enter into the story, which brings us to our second stage this morning. Stage number two, the serpent that was present. Folks, everything was so good before chapter three. Everything was so peaceful and right, but then look at verse one now. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Where did this serpent come from? Why was he even allowed into the garden? Is this a literal snake or or did it walk into the garden because later on God curses it to to roam on its belly? What exactly is happening here? We don't have answers to all of these questions, but, but here's what we do know. Because of the serpent's evil intentions, which we see immediately in chapter 3, because of his scheming, because of the harm that he does, and because of how Scripture continues to unfold and to tell us more about who this is, we know that this serpent is a manifestation of Satan himself. The devil, the prince of darkness, has entered into the story. But then that leaves us with the question, where did Satan come from? Up until this point in Genesis, there has been no major reference to other supernatural beings in the story, particularly evil ones. And so, who is this? Is Satan another deity, another God who has power that can rival the creator God's power? Is he equal to God, but just an evil version of God? Well, in order to understand this, we have to do a little bit of Bible study this morning. Sadly, we don't have time to do a, a full biblical theology of Satan, but here are a few things that we, we do know. We know that Satan is not a God of equal standing with the Creator God, and we know that because of Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. There's no other God besides Elohim, the Creator God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He existed alone. And we also know that he's not equal to God because... Therefore, he must have been created. Even verse 1 in chapter 3, in our passage, compares the serpent to the other creatures that the Lord God had made. And anything that is created is, therefore, by definition, subject to the one who does the creating. So he's not another God, and he is not of equal standing to God. But Then what is he? Well, as we continue to read through our Bibles, we begin to understand who Satan is and and what part he plays in the story that God is writing. As we continue to read through our Bibles, it becomes clear that God did create supernatural beings that were stronger than humanity and that were used to further God's purposes for humanity. In fact, it seems pretty clear that God had actually created a a divine counsel, almost like a, a heavenly board of directors that he uses to accomplish his purposes in the world, and that Satan, with his evil purposes, is a part of that divine counsel. Now, it seems very likely that Satan was not initially created evil, though he might have been created with the same purpose in mind, but he was not created evil, but rather became evil, We can see hints of that in Isaiah chapter 14, Revelation 12, which which speak of a heavenly being being thrown down from heaven. It seems like Satan had been created as an angel to be a part of this heavenly committee, but then his his pride gets the better of him. He wants to become more like God or be equal to God, and he falls into sin and he becomes evil. Yet even as an evil spirit, he is still a part of God's heavenly council. He's he's part of the board of directors that God uses to accomplish his purposes. Where, Where do we see this in Scripture? Listen to 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 18 to 23. It says this, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And he, God, said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. God's talking to his heavenly committee, and he directs one of them, Satan, to go and to tempt Ahab in this way in order to accomplish his purposes. Folks, we see this even more clearly in the book of Job. I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Job, but it's a a book about a very, very godly man that God loves very, very much and that God wants to refine, to to, to trust him even more than he did already. Job was prospering in all of life. He had a great family and health and riches. Things were going well, but God wanted his faith in him to grow even stronger. And So what do we see that happens in Job chapter 1? It says in Job chapter one, verse six, now there was a day when the sons of God, that's that heavenly board of directors, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And folks, listen, in the original language in Job, it says not just and Satan, but and thus Satan. It's not until the New Testament that, that Satan begins to be used as a personal name for this being. But in Job, when it says thus Satan, It seems to be speaking of an official title or a role or a position that was even given by God. And so it says, the Lord said to the Satan, from where have you come? The Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And so in Job and in first Kings and elsewhere, we see that this being called the Satan, is not not a deity who has power like God's, but is a created being that is used by God for God's purposes. Christopher Ashe says this in his commentary, he says, The Bible portrays for us a world that lies under the absolute supremacy and sovereignty of the Creator, who has no rivals, who is unique, such as there is no God like Him. And yet, He does not govern the world as the sole supernatural power. He governs the world by the means of and through the agency of a multiplicity of supernatural powers, some of whom are evil. That is to say, the sons of God represent powers that are greater than human powers and yet are less than God's power. They include among their number the Satan and his lying and evil spirits. Leland Reichen, another faithful theologian and pastor, says this, the role of the Satan is that of an investigator, tester, prosecuting attorney who seeks to to probe the character of human beings. Folks, that's exactly the role that God gives to the Satan in Genesis chapter 3. He is a tool in God's hand to test the heart of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Now, friends, listen, I know that this may create questions for some of you uh, because it makes God sound like the author of evil. I mean, someone who directs another person to do evil, that person is himself evil, right? But what we need to keep in mind is, is the big picture. Of scripture And that God has, has purpose to accomplish our good and our joy through his wise direction. And we need to remember how God's word makes it explicitly clear that God cannot be accused of doing evil. He only does what is right. And so, listen, there, there's certainly some mystery to what we're talking about here. But, and hopefully we can look at it more next week. But it is clear that God cannot be accused of doing wrong. And if you want to talk about that more later, I would love to have that conversation. But listen, I also think there's comfort for us here. Too often in this life, we feel like Satan is almost as strong as our God. We can give him way too much credit, as if he's, he's winning the day against our God. But friends, he's not winning. He's not victorious. Satan is nothing compared to our God. He is, as we will see next week, uh, under the curse of God, unable to do anything apart from God. He's unable to do anything that God is not fully aware of and that God does not allow. And so there's comfort for us there because listen, whatever evil is in your life right now, whatever evil feels like is growing in the world all around us, none of it happens apart from God's knowledge and none of it happens outside of his control. He is the creator God and he stands alone. And so folks, now we have laid the foundation. We, we have spoken about the probationary period of time and we have talked about the serpent that came into the garden to test Adam and Eve. The, the groundwork is laid and so let's consider what happens next. Stage number three, the lie that was believed. Friends, it can be hard to believe God at his word, can't it? It can be difficult to believe in something that we cannot see. Our emotions and our desires and our thoughts get the better of us, and we can often feel like we are clinging to something that is not really there. Listen, if you are a Christian who, who wrestles with doubt in your life, you need to know this morning that you are certainly not alone in that wrestling. In fact, if you are are tempted to feel like you are alone in your struggle for faith or that there is something wrong with you because of how you struggle with doubt as a Christian, listen, consider this fact with me. Consider that even in the Garden of Eden, even before sin had entered into this world, even before humanity knew pain and sorrow and difficulty, even then, Adam and Eve struggled for faith. Faith. Even then, they were susceptible to doubt. They were susceptible to questioning God's goodness and his plan. Why? Because God created us with free will and the ability to evaluate and to assess what is truly good and beautiful. Inherent to our free will is the ability to evaluate the worth of something and to question or doubt the worth of something. So doubt The process of assessing the worth or trustworthiness of something is not inherently bad. God can use it. It's just what we do with our doubt that matters. And we know what happens here. We know that Adam and Eve valued the wrong thing. They determined through their doubt that God's word was not good, and they believed something else to be better than God's word. And I think as we read this account, we can ask the question, how does that happen when you're living in the Garden of Eden and everything is so perfect? Well, friends, as we read through the text, we see that it happens in a few different ways. Again, look at verse one. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so here is the first step towards sin and shame. Satan introduces the idea that God's word is subject to our judgment. Satan says, did God actually say? Almost as if God's word needs our approval in order to be right. Satan introduces the idea to Eve that God's supremacy is actually open to your scrutiny. Friends, this is the first step towards sin and shame. God, God's supremacy, his, his worth, his beauty is not in question. Nothing in the creation account thus far has suggested that it is. His word is supreme and it is good and it doesn't need our approval in order to have it remain true. But the serpent suggests to Eve that the goodness of God's word is not a guarantee. Did God actually say, he says, He makes you think that God's word might actually not be good. And then what happens? Well, it's very subtle, but the the serpent begins to distort God's word. First, he, he calls it into question, and then he distorts it. Notice what he says next. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So, the serpent is actually talking about how God really did direct Adam and Eve up in chapter 2, verse 15. But, but Satan distorts what God had said. He emphasizes only the restriction of what God said, but doesn't at all speak about the allowance of what God said. In reality, this is what God said. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Satan distorts god's word he he minimizes what god allows and emphasizes what he forbids and friends listen isn't this what leads to our own doubt about god's goodness as well how often do you and i do this how often do we focus on on what god forbids rather than what he allows and what he graciously gives to us How many of us struggle to to understand God's goodness because there is just that one thing in our life, that one experience that he has so far seen fit to withhold from us? And so we grow suspicious and we grow skeptical. And this is what Satan does here, and Eve buys right into it. Adam and Eve didn't need much more than this to to question the goodness of God's word even though they had all of creation before them. Look at verse 2. Eve responds to the serpent by saying, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, she's so good in what she recounts God saying, but then she says this, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Folks, that's actually not what God said. God did not say those words, neither shall you touch it. And so in Eve's struggle to believe the goodness of God's word, she joins in with the serpent and begins to distort God's word. She makes it sound even more restrictive, more harsh than it was. She interprets it as she wants to interpret it. And then the serpent goes even farther and directly contradicts God's word. He says in verse 4, you will not surely die. He calls God a liar. Folks, do you see the progression towards sin and shame? It starts with us thinking that God's word needs our approval in order to be right. It continues by us critiquing the parts of God's word that we don't like, and then we begin to distort and even contradict God's word in order to allow ourselves to do what we want to do. Friends, this distortion of God's word Does great harm. Church, what we believe about God's word determines directly how we live. And when we fail in this, great harm is done. Great harm is done here in Genesis chapter 3, but great harm is done in our lives today as, as well. Friend, let me ask you this question. Do you stand over God's word? Have you bought into the cultural mentality that that truth has to feel right to you, it has to feel good to you in order for it to be truth? How much harm has been done in our lives and in this world when we doubt God's word just because it doesn't feel good to us? How many of us have have cheated on our tax returns or or stolen from our companies because we're convinced in that moment that God's word doesn't apply to us specifically and there's an allowance for us because we want what we want and we feel like we need what we need. How many adulterous relationships have begun by people convincing themselves that God's word must not apply to them to not touch that forbidden fruit because it just didn't feel good to them and they believe God wants me to be happy and so I'm gonna go after this thing. How many teenagers have fallen into sin because they convince themselves that God's restriction over their life through the good gift and role of their parents is not good for them? Church, to distort God's word is to do great harm. And we have all done this, haven't we? This is who we are. We have all fallen into the sin. And as we see in our text this morning, this Failure to to follow and to love and to respect God's word brings incredible shame before God and before each other. And folks, that brings us to our fourth point this morning, point number four, the shame that was felt. Verse seven says this, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately upon going against God's word, shame enters into the picture. Feelings of being in the wrong, feelings of being exposed, feelings of being vulnerable, feelings of being defiled are now their experience. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, and and make no mistake, this was both Adam and Eve, even though the serpent talks directly to Eve, Adam is standing right by her side the whole time, and it was actually Adam's responsibility to guard against these things. Our first parents failed, and ever since then, shame has entered into this world. And we all know what it is to feel this shame, don't we? Maybe you're somebody that deals with anger and you have these outbursts towards those around you on a regular basis and when you stop and think about them in your more sane moments, you you cringe and you want to hide. Maybe you've fallen into sexual sin over the last year and when those moments come, oh you just want to cringe again and you want to hide that entire area of your life from others and act like it's not there. The sins of abuse that have been done against us by other people leave us feeling defiled and dirty like Adam and Eve, and we just want to hide. How sorrowful, how sorrowful this moment that the place of security under God's loving word has been lost Humanity was perfectly secure under his authoritative word in the garden, but when his word was distorted and then disobeyed, great harm is done, and now we feel shame. But church, where do we go with our shame? What hope did Adam and Eve have after they failed this probationary test? Was was hope forever lost? Well, we're going to see next week that even in the midst of their shame and the consequences for their sin, God has a plan. God immediately begins to work towards a solution to this problem. Later in chapter 3, we see God talk about a future seed, a future child of the woman who would come and defeat the serpent once and for all. Seeds of hope are given through the one who would one day come. And church, now consider with me what happened when the seed of this woman did come. Consider with me what happened when Jesus enters into the story. Scripture describes Jesus as the second Adam. The first Adam was our representative head who led us into sin. So Christ is our second Adam, our second representative head who now leads us towards life and peace. And folks, consider his probationary test as well. In the same way that before Adam could begin his work to fill this world as God directed him, he needed to be tested to see if he would fully trust God's word and God's authority. In the same way, so Jesus also was tested before he could start his mission. Do you remember, do you remember at the very beginning of all of the Gospels, before Jesus starts his earthly ministry, how it says that Jesus was led out by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? And it says that the tempter came and spoke to him there. Before he could start his earthly mission, he needed to be tested as well. And actually, the Gospel of Mark makes the connection to the first Adam even stronger when Mark describes Jesus in the wilderness with all of the wild animals making the connection to the Garden of Eden. As Adam was tested, so Jesus was tested but while the first Adam failed to believe the word of God and actually distorted the word of God to his and our great harm, Jesus actually defends the word of God and he uses the word of God as his ultimate authority. It says that the devil came and tempted him to turn two stones into bread, but Jesus says, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word It comes from the mouth of God. Satan tempts him two more times, but each time Jesus says, as it is written, as it is written, and then he quotes God's word to Satan. The second Adam does not distort the word of God. He stands on the word of God and thereby passes the exam that the first Adam failed to pass, and he therefore qualifies himself to continue on his God-given mission which would ultimately lead to him dying in our place on the cross, which would ultimately lead to him becoming our righteousness, becoming our representative head before God. As Adam sinned on our behalf, so Christ obeyed on our behalf. Listen, Paul the Apostle says it this way. In Romans chapter 5, listen to these beautiful words. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, we are all guilty, he says. But the free gift is not like that trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God, and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass, Adam's sin, brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses, all of ours, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Amen? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you can applaud. It's glorious. Adam's failure brought sin and shame. And yes, we have walked in that sin and shame for far too long. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, we deserve his wrath, but Jesus passed the test. He stood on God's word. He believed God's promises even when it was not easy to do so, and his obedience qualified him to fulfill the mission that God had given, to redeem those who were stuck in their sin and shame. The second Adam, our Jesus, comes to take those lost in shame, and he comes to give them a new name and a new hope. And so, friends, here is our hope today. The second Adam, Jesus, stand on our behalf. Jesus is fulfilling his mission even today. As as the first Adam failed to fill this world with a humanity that stood on and believed God's word fully, Jesus is in the process of saving men and women out of their sin, out of their shame, and is causing them to be part of a, a new humanity, a new humanity who does not stand on their own wisdom, but on the word of God. And so, friends, as the church, here is our calling. We cling to this second Adam. We cling to this Jesus. He is our representative head. Apart from him, we stand condemned. His righteousness, praise God, is now our righteousness, and so we rest in him every day. You wake up in the morning, and you feel the the pain of your sin and the brokenness of your body, and you say, it's okay, the second Adam is with me. He stands by my side. And friends, we go and we seek to be a people who don't just cling to Jesus, but who stand on his word in a way that Adam and Eve did not. We seek to, by God's grace, as new creations in Christ, we seek to believe and obey the word of God, because there is no better way to live our lives in this world than according to his holy word. And so, church, may we cling to him, and may we, in a way that Adam and Eve fail to, follow him. And may we obey his word for our good and for the glory of his name. Let's pray.